This is James Young with Morgan & Morgan. You're listening to the Whistleblower Attorneys Podcast, where we discuss the history of whistleblowers and how you can uncover and report fraud against the government. Brought to you by whistleblowerattorneys.com. Welcome to the sixth and final installment in a discussion on whistleblower claims. Today, we'll complete the loop by diving into the resolution or settlement of these claims. What may happen towards the end of the case is the government will put together a document called a term sheet. A term sheet is basically a summary or outline of the terms they feel are material to resolution. The government has pretty standard terms in negotiations, with the exception of a few things. First, the amount to be paid is always related to the unique facts and circumstances of the case. Second, whether or not the government will require injunctive terms is entirely dependent upon the type of conduct and other factors. If injunctive relief is in play, a Corporate Integrity Agreement, or CIA, will be drafted by OIG of HHS. I can tell you from experience that this part of negotiations can be the most time-consuming and grueling. Money is money, but when you tell a company it can't do certain things, or it must do certain things, it takes a lot longer to get buy-in and corporate approval. Often, an agreement on money is reached only to be delayed while the parties negotiate terms for the CIA. Sometimes, companies attempt to establish a hydraulic relationship between injunctive terms and money, whereby they lower the amount agreed to be paid in relation to the cost of complying with the injunctive terms. So what is the role of relators and their counsel in all of this? Well, it depends. Even when a case is declined, the government should involve relators' counsel in order to gain their support for the settlement when they move to intervene. Defendants likely know they can get a better financial deal from the government, so they may try to approach them proactively about an offer separately from the underlying litigation. I've seen instances both ways. On the one hand, an AUSA or DOJ lawyer will tell the defendant they simply need to involve us, and I've also seen cases settled out from underneath us. One of the keys here is Relators Council must maintain active and open communications with the government. The DOJ or AUSA lawyers will have a hard time holding settlement meetings in secret if you're talking to them every week or so. Sometimes a defendant will say, we want to settle, but we lack the ability to pay. This is a dangerous tack for them to take. The government requires such defendants to complete a pretty robust financial affidavit called a financial statement of corporate debtor under penalty of perjury. The government will also run financial and banking records to verify their claims. If they are truly hobbled financially, the government has in the past allowed payment plans or extended times for payment of settlement amounts. Relators counsel should consider doing their own creditworthy checks of defendants before filing and during the investigative phase. One of the growing trends in KETAM resolutions is the use of mediation. In our experience, mediation is only as valuable as the mediator you use. It's a waste of time and money to go to a mediation with a mediator who has absolutely no clue what a KETAM is. Similarly, it's a complete waste of time to mediate with a defendant that has no authority or intent to settle and is just delaying the process to gather intelligence on your case. Remember, the government is a necessary party at mediation. Can you imagine reaching an agreement at mediation without the government and then seeking their approval, only to be told the amount is too low and the government is going to intervene, thereby derailing all of your hard work and settlement? Bear in mind, there will be conflicts of interest between the relator and the government at mediation. The government might prefer to apportion 
the settlement on the criminal side, which relators do not share in. Or, the defendant may simply offer one lump sum, including all fees and costs, in which case the relator's interests and the government's interests diverge. Potentially, the relator's interest diverges from their own attorneys, depending on the fee arrangement. I won't spend any time discussing general strategies for mediation, but it's vital that relators' counsel and the government have in-depth exploration of their various positions in advance of mediation. It's too difficult to get governmental approvals on the fly or during mediations. I've also found that, unless the parties have a sense of the case value and injunctive terms in advance, two-part mediations in QTAM cases can prove quite helpful. Part 1 consists of framing the issues and monetary terms, while Part 2, usually a few weeks later, consists of negotiating the final terms, including injunctive provisions in the final agreement. There is perhaps no more sensitive subject than that of negotiating a relator share. One practice pointer, if you're going to mediate cases, relator and their counsel should know in advance what the government's position is regarding relator share. In larger cases, a difference of just a few percentage points can amount to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. The Department of Justice has developed a list of criteria to be used when calculating relator share. There are 14 distinct points to be considered when increasing the relator share. The first point DOJ considers is whether the relator reported the fraud promptly. Obviously, this provision is intended to penalize people who sit on the fraud hoping that the amount adds up. The second factor the Department of Justice considers is when relator learned of the fraud, did they try to stop the fraud or report it to the supervisor or the government? They don't want people sitting on information and allowing the fraud to continue. The third point in the DOJ relator share memo is whether the key TAM filing and ensuing investigation caused the offender to halt the fraudulent practices. The fourth factor in the DOJ memo is whether the complaint warned the government of a significant safety issue. You can imagine this coming up in medical device and pharmaceutical litigation. The fifth element of the DOJ relator share memo is whether the complaint exposed a nationwide or isolated practice. The sixth element is whether the relator provided extensive first-hand details of the fraud to the government. The seventh element is whether the government had any knowledge of the fraud. The eighth element is whether the relator provided substantial assistance during the investigation and or pre-trial phases of the case. This is an area where we always counsel our clients to do everything they can, go above and beyond in assisting the government. Sometimes it may be as innocuous as asking to see the relator's text messages. The ninth element is whether or not the relator was an excellent and credible witness at deposition or trial. Obviously, you want to do everything you can to prepare your client to be an excellent witness. The tenth element isn't in the control of the relator, rather, it's their counsel. The tenth element is whether or not relator's counsel provided substantial assistance to the government. We put a lot of work into our filings, and we try to take a lot of credit when the time comes due. We prepare relator share memos and emphasize the efforts we undertook in preparing our briefings. The eleventh point in the DOJ memo is whether relator and their counsel supported and cooperated with the government during the entire proceeding. Interestingly, the memo is unclear as to whether or not this includes divergent views relating to relator share itself. The twelfth element, which is very rarely emphasized because so few of these cases go to trial, is whether or not the case went to trial. The thirteenth point in the DOJ relator share memo is whether the recovery was relatively small. The DOJ believes smaller cases justify a larger relator share award. The final element, and one that's quite personal to the relator, is whether or not filing the complaint had a substantial adverse impact on the relator. 
oftentimes, relators counsel overlook this element. Relators suffer all kinds of things after filing these complaints, from industry blackballing to corporate-wide retaliation. Conversely to these points, there are 11 different points the DOJ considers when decreasing the relator's share. Relators counsel should proactively build the case and instruct relators to meet the positive factors and avoid the negative ones. For example, the first point DOJ considers is whether relator participated in the fraud. Oftentimes, relators will have some small participation in the underlying fraud. Counsel should do everything they can to explain this to the government up front and minimize the involvement of their client. The second element in decreasing the relator share is whether the relator substantially delayed reporting the fraud. The third element in the DOJ decreasing relator share memo is whether or not relator or their counsel violated FCA procedures, including the seal provisions and pre-filing disclosures. The fourth element is whether relator had little knowledge of the fraud or only mere suspicions. The fifth element is whether the relator's knowledge was based primarily on public information. Rest assured, the government will ascertain the extent of public information with the relator at their interview. The sixth element, which rarely comes up, but when it does, it's important to note, is whether the relator learned of the fraud in the course of their government employment. The seventh element is whether or not the government already knew of the fraud. You'll recall in episode one where we discussed the original version of the False Claims Act. In its original version, the False Claims Act precluded recoveries to individuals when their claims were based on knowledge already within the government's control. The eighth element asks whether relator or their counsel provided help after filing the complaint or hampered the government's efforts in developing the case or unreasonably opposed the government's positions in litigation. For example, the government will quite often and regularly request consent to extensions of the seal provisions. Relators counsel needs to think long and hard before denying requests for extensions. The ninth element is whether or not the case required a substantial effort by the government to develop the facts to win the lawsuit. This is where all that effort that we put into the disclosure statement and complaint comes into play. We like to think that our disclosure statement and complaint is the case wrapped in a bow. Hopefully, based on our efforts, along with the insight of our client, we've put the case in a position where the government doesn't have to take substantial effort to develop the facts. However, when the government does conduct an extensive investigation, you need to supplement everything they find by corroborating it with your client. The tenth element is whether the case settled shortly after the complaint was filed or with little need for discovery. The last element the DOJ considers in decreasing relator share is whether the ultimate recovery was relatively large. It seems counterintuitive that a relator would get a lower share based on a bigger, more successful case, but that's how DOJ views things. There are two additional provisions within the False Claims Act that merit some discussion here, and those are the trouble damages and civil penalties provisions. This is a topic that almost always disappoints relators when they find out the truth. When you first read about the laws, relators do some quick math in their head, triple the damages that they witnessed, and add civil penalties of $12,000 per violation to come up with astronomical settlement figures. During negotiations, these two elements, trouble damages and civil penalties, are almost always left out of the room. There's a reason the laws have them in there, to punish violators and not allow this to be a cost of doing business. But the reality is the government almost never collects either civil penalties or trouble damages. Don't get me wrong. There have been instances where cases have gone to trial and these were awarded. But for the most part, 
in negotiated settlements involving the government, they do not. Another thing to be aware of is that these resolutions almost never include admissions of guilt or liability. This is a sore subject with me and many of my colleagues, as we think DOJ should insist on admissions. Relators are often disappointed when defendants issue press releases, touting that they simply paid to avoid the uncertainty of trial and admit no wrongdoing in the process. The False Claims Act is quite clear that defendants will pay relators attorney's fees. But this issue is often used by defendants to create a conflict between lawyers and their clients or clients and the government. Our approach here is that fees are not negotiated until the underlying matter is resolved. Almost every Ketam lawyer out there will work on a contingency basis. The fees recovered in litigation from defendants may be used to offset the percentage amounts relators owe their lawyers, but that is entirely dependent on the unique contract between the parties. The False Claims Act contains an anti-retaliation provision that provides for distinct damages. It's not uncommon for relators to have suffered some form of retaliation at the hands of their employer. Section H provides a cause of action to reward such behavior. The FCA provides, in subsection H, a cause of action for relators to bring against such bad actors. Importantly, this cause of action is personal to the relator and not the government. Counsel should consider including age claims where appropriate, but understand they can muddy the waters. Finally, taxes. Unfortunately, the Internal Revenue Service takes the position that, for federal income tax purposes, key TAM payments to a relator under the FCA are ordinary income and not capital gains. This position was challenged by a relator in the case of Alderson v. United States, and the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit upheld the IRS's stance. So, as of this podcast, the only circuit court decision on the tax treatment of these payments says, unfortunately, that it's ordinary income. But think of it this way. Relators were not injured in a personal injury case. They suffered no expenses or financial harm, so the potential windfall they receive truly is like winning a prize. Relators could potentially write off or expense actual costs in bringing the action, but that starts to get tricky and an accountant should be consulted. So that concludes our journey through whistleblower cases from beginning to end. I hope you found it educational and perhaps entertaining. My firm and I are ready to answer your questions at no cost or risk to you. I can be reached at jyoung at forthepeople.com. And our website is www.whistlebloweratorneys.com. Thanks for listening.